Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 496, for November 19th, 2022. Welcome back, and 4321, man. Right. Uh, this week, we're talking to Nikisha Williams about the Montreal Indians. And, um, <clears throat> if you've seen the beautiful uh, suits that they wear, um, you know, around Montreal, but also St. Oh, it's not St. Patrick's Day. St. Joseph's, St. Joseph's, right? Um, so they, they march around this, or, well, you know, masks are going around the city um, in uh, those beautiful costumes, but there's, there's a lot of um, um, history behind that, and a lot of tradition. And so Nikisha has tried to figure out the facts from the myths and, you know, what's what about them, and we'll definitely be looking forward to learning more about the Mardi Gras Indians in a minute, but first, this week in Louisiana history. So this week in Louisiana history on November nineteenth, nineteen twenty. Wow, my mom's nearly my mom's birthday. Um, first time ever the term Green Wave was used to describe Tulane. And I wonder how they chose that particular name and not something else. That, yeah, because who's ever heard of a Green Wave? Um, well, uh, the blue—they're usually blue. If they're green, there's something wrong. <laughs> For uh, this week in New Orleans history, George Stone is born November 19, 1909. She was an archaeologist and ethnographer specialized in pre-Columbian Mesoamerica and the so-called intermediate era of Lower Central America. Uh, she served as the director of the National Museum of Costa Rica and endowed numerous chairs in the United States uh, University. So, yeah, pretty cool. Now, they have done, they have had, at least at Tulane, I don't know where she studied, but Tulane has had, historically, a very fine program in Latin American studies. Well, you know, New Orleans is kind of the northernmost city of the Caribbean, so it makes sense that we would study it there. Because yeah, people don't realize when you look at a globe, where it's actually easier to see that than on a real map, like a you know flat surface. But if you look at a spheroid as a, as a, mm-hmm. a globe, you know, a representation of the of the planet of the Earth, you'll see that the Latin America curves hard, so to speak, to the east. So right. it is closer to go into Louisiana, frankly, than it would go into Texas. Like particularly if you know if nowadays if you'd fly down or fly up, uh, but bringing consumer goods in, like you know fruits and vegetables and that kind of thing. Well, it would make more sense to come into the port of New Orleans and come in, say, to you know, some place in South Texas like Houston or or where else? I guess maybe Corpus Christi or Beaumont. Well, you know, New Orleans makes a lot more sense. The Mississippi River that you can take that stuff inland. And oh yeah, yeah. A lot of stuff on a barge. I think I read somewhere here quite a long time ago. It was after Katrina that about a third of the consumer goods that that come out of Latin America come through the port of New Orleans. I believe it. And particularly out of South America. Yeah, so there's a, you know, the more and more I think that we establish 
good trading agreements, you know, that are fair trading agreements with, you know, the countries down south as well as the United States, I think the better, uh, where it's a real fair trade and not something that's just benefiting one party but both parties. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, those consumer goods coming out of South America are a big deal for this, really, really this whole state. Uh, oh, yeah. Because it's coming in, so. Well, now for this week in Louisiana. So let me bring that page back up. It disappeared. So this week in Louisiana, we highlight the Logansport Christmas Festival, November the 19th until January the 7th. <clears throat> this is at 192 Elm Street in Logansport. Uh, that used to be, by the way, the gateway to Spanish Texas. That was the, the western border of the United States was Logansport, or that area. So Logansport Christmas Festival is a one-day event held on Saturday the 19th of uh is that right? They're calling it a one-day event, but it says it lasts for the festival. I guess the whole day, uh, the whole festival lasts from the 19th to the, tw- the 7th. So maybe there's like a, a festival that's like the central event, I suppose. Yeah, and then the lights are on throat. Uh, maybe so, okay. Yeah. I lost the page again. Let me try to get that page back. Jeez, Louise. Okay. <clears throat> so this is a one-day event held on Saturday, the 19th of November. It includes a parade, food and craft vendors, live entertainment, children's activities, and fireworks along the Sabine River. The festival combines, or I'm sorry, continues with thousands of magical lights turned on lightly January 20, uh, 2023rd with special events and activities held on Saturdays in December. There is a website and a phone number. Is that the correct uh, area code? It's got a 337 number. That sounds like that ought to be 318. That's down south of Shreveport. That's what I'm saying. That should that should be a three one eight, which is north and central Louisiana, I would think. Oh. Well, I've just copied and pasted, so <laughs> <laughs> Well now for this week's postcard from Louisiana. Uh we listened to Aislinn Kirchert um write her poem Thanksgiving in New Orleans. Last name is Ah. How much is it cost? Whatever you want to pay. All right. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, no worries. I'm just working on one for him. Oh, okay. And I'll be done in just a minute or two. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. Okay. Oh, did we have a game? Yeah, last week. Oh, yeah. I quit watching. <laughs> it was too depressing. But they seem to be coming back a little bit that I've heard. So you from Chicago? Yeah, yeah. You from here? Um, North Louisiana, which is nobody's ever heard of. You know Shreveport, maybe? Yeah. Isn't that where is that where LSU is? Or no? No, LSU is in Baton Rouge. Um, it's right up near Arkansas, and we're about an hour out of there. Um, halfway between Dallas and uh, Jackson, Mississippi. I've been to Dallas, and I've been to Jackson. So, yeah, it's on I-20. Where, you know, if you drove from one to the other, you would drive what's through you, it. What's the seaport we got? Oil? What, what's that? Oil, is it? Production? Uh, yeah, oil. We've got a lot of oil, gas, and timber. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Shreveport has a lot of other industries as well, and Air Force Base, and stuff like that. Cool. So, how are you enjoying New Orleans? Well, your weather in Chicago is about... I was about to ask, what is the weather like? <laughs> and it's, they're talking maybe snow on the weekend. I go, oh my God. I didn't even pack a pair of pants or a long sleeve shirt. And then last night it got chilly, so yeah. I had to go buy a sweatshirt somewhere. All right. Cool. No, it's uh, definitely, you know, that's why we, we came with a couple couples just for the weekend. 
have a little bit of good food, you get a little nicer weather. And this is really perfect New Orleans weather. Oh, yeah. It's cooled off. It's not hot and sticky. Right. Um, my wife wouldn't let me. I'd gone golfing, but she shot me. <laughs> <laughs> Back home. They've got some golf courses over. down here. Yeah. It's too damn cold. It's year-round here. Yeah, I bet. I mean, um, you know, it's, unless it's actually storming or something, people get out there and play. She's inspired. You're going to get a heck of a poem. I think we're distracting her. <laughs> is, this, is this a love poem? <coughs> oh, no. That's that's way over. Oh, way it's over. Thanksgiving in New Orleans. Oh, okay. I'm mostly interested in food and, you know, good alcohol at this point. Where are you guys going to eat? I don't know yet. I'm going to... I'm thinking oysters tonight. Like an oyster bar. Okay. That sounds good. I like raw oysters. I also like good grilled oysters. And what's the place here for that? I can't remember the name. I know it when I see it. It's like a block or two off of bourbon. Okay. But I don't... I've never written it down. Um, but it's got like... Pretty nice interior. It's a bar. And, uh, but I mean, there's so many of them. You just yeah, yeah. kind of pick one you walk by. Now you should try your po' boy while you're down here. Yeah, we went to this uh, called Napoleon House. And they had their gumbo and they had a po' boy. And then we went to Central Bakery and had... Had another po' boy? <laughs> had some kind of Mutopola sandwich. Muffaletta. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But uh, who knows? Girls just take me where they just tell me, you're going here. It's hard to go wrong. Yeah, no, the food's been good. How about in Shreveport? That's mostly general southern food, although with the Louisiana twist. But most of the people up there moved in from Georgia, South Carolina, Kentucky. And so okay. it's kind of central south type food. So it's okay. more like what you'd get in South Arkansas. or like fried stuff? Um, a lot of fried stuff. Not for me as much anymore. Yeah, I know. What you mean. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I was at a pretty good restaurant. Was at, and we just, I said, they said choice, fried or grilled. And I said, I'll do the grilled, but, you know, grilled catfish. That was good. Can you read it for me? Sure, of course I can. Thanksgiving in New Orleans. Thanksgiving in the land of perpetual feasting. Abundance decking galleries in the form of filigree. As precarious wandering vines humming to the invisible combined harmonies of multiple brass bands, hollering under, uh, hollering autumnal haunts under the glowering mistress moon, who sheds her light and her forgivings into the cascading ripples of the Mississippi, forgiving the land, forgiving the ghosts, forgiving the gifts taken from the grave it once was, for all of it is sacred, from the turning of fattened grapes into a velvet wine, to the roasted and browning edge of tender turkey, falling apart into truth on your tongue. There is so much to give thanks for. Very good, thank you. Of course. Do you have a email address I could send you a link when it gets posted yeah absolutely
just write it on the back. Can you read that? Yeah. Uh, oh, you can take the card if you want. Oh, okay. Yeah, great. Little card. Thank you. Aislinn? Aislinn, And yeah. how long have you been here? For two years. Mm-hmm. Did you ever meet Erin Lyrell? She did this kind of stuff. No. She used to write down by um, Doreen, the clarinet queen. Oh, yeah, Doreen, yeah. I set up by her, too, sometimes. Especially in the rain, you know, you mm-hmm. get the overhang. Yeah, it's an awesome spot. So you're from around here? No, I'm from the East Coast, originally from Connecticut and Massachusetts. Oh, wow. So it's a big shift for you. Yeah, I lived in Chicago for seven years. Wow, so did he. Yeah, I, I heard that. Oh, so, bienvenue, yeah. Louisiana. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Y'all have a good night. Thanks. Now, on to interview with Nakesha Williams. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And we are here today with Nakesha Williams. Welcome, Nakesha. Hi. Howdy. And you have, I think it's a brand new book on the Mardi Gras Indians, right? I do. Why don't you tell us the title and where people can buy it? Well, it's called Mardi Gras Indians, as you just said, and it can be bought anywhere books are sold, I believe. Great. And I think LSU Press is uh, uh, putting that out, um, which is, you know, it's a really good press. Um, um so, um, um, how did you get the, well, first of all, are you from Louisiana? Like, uh, did you grow up with the Mardi Gras Indian? I did not. I'm actually from Chicago, but both of my parents, my mother and my father, were born and raised in New Orleans. Oh, so did they talk about them when you were growing up? Not really. I really wasn't introduced into Indian culture until I watched the show Treme. Oh, my um, God. Exactly. Yeah. How- into it. <clears throat> Big Chief Albert Lambro, he's one of my heroes, man. Um, he, he he was bringing back the, the Mardi Gras Indians in spite of everything, you know, and um, I, I think I had seen guys in the suits at times, but I had no idea what he meant. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that was the first time that I was introduced to Indian culture, and it was through writing this book that I realized that Big Chief, uh, the Big Chief on the show was based on a few actual living Indians and their families in New Orleans. Wow. So I always wondered how accurate the portrayal was. It seemed, seemed pretty authentic. It it was. The, the sewing all the time, every day, no matter where you are, even for the son who was a jazz musician, much like uh, Donald Harrison Jr., uh, is, is very much true to the culture uh, and the sacrifices that the, those who do mask uh, make for it and to create the suits and to mask with their tribes every year. Well, I mean, one Mardi Gras Indian suit costs as much as a not too terrible used car. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's an investment, you know. They have to raise money for that sometimes. Uh, that's where you... Where you Spend your money is on the suit. Yes. I mean, are they the are co- they able are they able to reuse those suits from one year to the next, or do they have to do a lot of repair work or refurbishment to you know to keep them going? Do you know, have, did you, did you look at that at all? Oh, absolutely. And the the 
quickest answer is they make a new suit every year. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so every year they want to come out and look completely different than the year that they did before. So um, one said to me that, you know, an Indian suit is never done because mm-hmm. even as you mask Mardi Gras Day, it, you, you've been sewn on it all year and you may not be done with a certain section, so you go out with the best that you have, and then they may wear that suit that year for Mardi Gras, Super Sunday, St. Joseph's Night, again, maybe at Jazz Fest, but in each time they, they get to complete it while they're working on something else. So they spend a lot of time, they invest a lot of their own money in creating these suits and these, you know, living artworks and creations, all to do it again for the next year as long as they mask. I know the same Indian, Tutti Montana, famously made 50 suits, and his son, Daryl Montana, who's still living, has stopped masking because he said he had a gentleman's bet with his father that he would never make more suits than his father did. Oh, wow. Well, I saw one Mardi Gras Indian out on uh, Bourbon Street during the day, um, like doing his thing and raising money, I guess, for the next suit. So um, you do occasionally see them some other times in, uh, you know, Mardi Gras Day, but that's a big day, right? And maybe St. Joseph's? Mardi Gras Day and then St. Joseph's night are two of the big days. If you see them down on Bourbon Street in the quarter, they're probably not generally masking with their whole tribe. It might be a paid event. Um, and mm-hmm. so, those, so that, when you see them there, that kind of deals with, you know, how they're able to make their money and make their living is by appearing in their suit. But when they do appear generally mm-hmm. with their entire tribe completely masked, it is it is for special occasions and special occasions only. Right. You do see, like, um, they'll have a second line for a wedding, and sometimes they'll have one of the Indians that they're paying to go with them. And, yeah, that's how they raise their money. And, you know, New Orleans is a destination city where people come for stuff like that. And uh, that's how the local people make their, you know, they they need the gig, right, because what they do is very expensive. Um, let's go back. Um, what what has your research told you about the very beginnings of the Mardi Gras Indians? Because it's always seemed a little bit misty when I was trying to research it. Like, what exactly, when exactly did this start and what was it? Uh, so my research showed that the tradition for masking Indian has a lot of different origin stories. Many of those origin stories are rooted in ancient Africa, in the Congolese, uh, in the in the Kingdom of Congo, yeah. the 1400s. They are also indigenous roots uh, in the Lower Mississippi River Valley uh, before the colony of Louisiana was founded by the French. But what is what really stands out is that once all of these independent cultures came together and were syncretized, the African culture, the indigenous culture, Parisian uh, carnival culture, and then Catholic procession culture from the Catholic Church. They were synthesized and syncretized in Congo Square by African and indigenous people um, on Sundays when they would have a free day because New Orleans, unlike the rest of the American South, allowed enslaved people to not work on the weekends and they would have to go out and sell their services to make their own living on those days. And so Congo Square served not only as a marketplace for 
mm-hmm. enslaved and indigenous people to sell their goods and their wares, but it also served as a congregation space for them to reconnect with their families, their tribe members, and also maintain their own indigenous and native practices. Yeah, so, one of the critical components of slavery as it was practiced in most places was what they call social death, where we're going to stamp out every bit of your culture so that you have nothing to fall back on. But they were able to keep that African culture alive in Congo Square. If you go there on a Sunday afternoon today, they're still drumming. They're still dancing. Mm-hmm. But I would disagree with you when you say American slavery uh, created a social death in the black community, even though it is not completely recognized mm-hmm. um, in our country. There are still many African indigenous practices within black American culture today. And the Mardi Gras Indians is one example. Jazz right. is another. Our food ways and yeah. uh, stories yeah. that we tell with our, with our food is another. And even in the ways that we worship. So I would say that even though, there was an aim by the white slaveholding class to stamp out the cultural ways from Africa. And once people were enslaved and how slavery spread in the United States, but it was not complete, it was not total. And there are still vestiges of indigenous African culture in black Americans today. There was always resistance um, in, throughout. So even if they had that goal, they weren't able to carry it out completely. That's good to know. I'd like to follow up on the the Catholic processional culture, too, because one of my aunts was a Sicilian and raised Catholic and eventually converted to Protestant. But but I've heard of this kind of thing where her family were from. It was actually her great-grandparents were Sicilian, you know, from Sicily. And I think great-grandparents and and great-great-grandparents, too, I think, on both sides. And uh, I've seen that kind of thing in various parts of Italy, but I've also seen it in Latin America. There's a whole every time there's a saints uh, like a saints day, but particularly the major saints, and particularly something like you know like a carnival type festival, yes. you can see this in the streets. I mean, can you comment on that more? Because it kind of vaguely seems to resemble some of that from what I've seen from my aunt's culture. Yes. So initially, the Catholic Church had a very strong procession culture, where, as you mentioned, they would do processionals and plays and other celebratory things and functions for their, can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. You sound good. Okay. I switched to my, switching to my AirPods because my daughter just woke up. <clears throat> they would do these celebratory occasions for the feast of certain saints, for certain holidays in the liturgical calendar. And so as Catholic people and especially folks in Spain and Portugal began to spread the message of the gospel and began to trade in Africa and then do missionary work there. One of the ways they were able to spread the religion and then colonize all of these countries in Africa was through Catholicism and by syncretizing the feast days and procession culture of the Catholic church with some of the indigenous practices that were in ancient African ancient African kingdoms, as well as here in the United States with indigenous cultures. So that's kind of where that started. And then eventually the Catholic Church itself phased out a lot of their their procession procession culture ways in favor of what we more resemble as a Catholic Church today. But mm-hmm. a lot of 
you, people who were enslaved in the United States, New Orleans specifically, in South America, in the Caribbean, you think about Brazil, you think about Trinidad and Tobago, you think about, you know, all of these countries that have carnivals or have brotherhoods and things like that, all of that comes from Catholic procession culture and endures from that lineage. And it's only in modern history that it's been commodified in this tourist kind of way, but right. just in from the Catholic Church. Well, I want to say they, they, seem, they seem not to know, too, the, the commodification culture, corporate capitalism really in general, seems not to know, like some of what you're saying, I know from hearing this from my aunt, but also a friend of mine and Bruce's, uh, his wife is Honduran, and she's actually Protestant, too, but a lot of her family back home in Honduras, I think it's her extended family, or a lot of them are Catholic. And those colors, even that they will use in processions, those colors symbolize things. Is that, mm-hmm. is that true with the Indians as well, with the Mardi Gras Indians? Do they go into color symbolism and that kind of thing, or do you know? Their colors don't necessarily symbolize something. Usually when they wear white, it's to either mourn the death of someone, mm-hmm. although so, and, and white is usually considered a sacred color. However, it's not it's not that you can't wear a white suit until someone dies, but yeah. it, it, that is probably one of the most sacred colors. But other than that, all colors are games. Uh-huh. I was going to say the procession culture is alive in New Orleans. they got St. Rosalie uh, this Sunday coming up in Kenner. It's a Sicilian-based uh, uh, procession. So, yeah, uh, it's pretty it, – I guess it all goes – Back in some way to that. Those oh, my, my aunt would have been right at home, believe me. <laughs> at least my, the younger version of my aunt when she was in her 20s before she became a Protestant. Yeah, she, because, again, they were very Sicilian. They observed St. Joe, and she was from the West Coast originally from the Fresno area. But they observed all of those saints days. You know, they were at Mass faithfully every week, sometimes several times a week. Uh, my aunt sang opera. I mean, and she would get up and, and do operatic arias, you know, for – for church services and so forth. So uh, they were very much tied into that Catholic, you know, Sicilian Catholic culture. Mm. So I have heard that the Mardi Gras Indian, a lot mm. of them, seems like you say, go back to Africa, but at the time they claimed it was based on when the Wild West show and Buffalo Bill Cody came to town because uh, it was too threatening to the white hierarchy to say, oh, we're dressing like our warrior ancestors the Congo. Did you come across anything like that? Absolutely. So most Indians will refer to the year 1886 as when modern Mardi Gras Indian culture kind of began, though it does date back to that. There are reports and articles of black people masked in feathers as early as the 1700s, if not before. However, the the date of 1886 uh, and the reference to Buffalo Bill is attributed because, if you remember in history, Indians were expelled from much of the American South right. during the regime of Andrew Jackson when he was president dur- through the Trail of Tears. And right. so a lot of those indigenous tribes in the lower Mississippi River Valley had to either go into hiding or were killed or marched west so that it could make way for more white settlers into the Louisiana territory. However, with Buffalo Bill, 
coming and doing his Wild West shows, he incorporated um, Plains Indian culture and in his shows, and so it became a very popular form of American pop culture and entertainment. And so while all of this is going on, there were laws in New Orleans and in Louisiana that tried to forbid black people from participating in Mardi Gras and from masking because of the turbulence of, you know, the Civil War and things like that. But with the popularity of the Wild West shows and the Plains Indians, it was a way for black people who by that time in 1886 had been freed to not only pay homage to their ancestral warrior culture from Africa, but to do so by masking it in a way that was acceptable to white Mardi Gras revelers in the city. And that is why they dress as Plains Indians and paying homage to their struggle and their resistance to um, to being colonized and to being enslaved and to putting up a fight despite the the dire history that they went through. Yeah, one of the options open to an escaped slave in uh, Louisiana, getting to Canada would be a real, you know, that's kind of a long way. But we're about 45, 60 miles from uh, the Homa Indians, and they would go down there, go down the bayou, and uh, sometimes be adopted by the tribe. And Mm -hmm. um, so there's that um, connection, that local connection as well. Yeah, I mean, and that's true across the American South that for enslaved people in the Deep South who could not foreseeably run as far north as they needed to, let alone Canada, once the Fugitive Slave Act was passed, and that was the only safe place to be, you know, it was considered safe to find an indigenous tribe to to go and live with and become family with as a way for freedom. So that is absolutely true. You know, the, the the people who would have banned the the masking and then the celebrations like that, it tells you a lot not just about who they are uh as an entity, but it also tells you about what they fear, right? I mean they're they're kinda of giving away their, their hand, so to speak, if you look at it like, you know, players around a card table. But they're giving away their hand by telling you what they fear. Yes, they, they're giving away their hand by telling you what they fear, but that's also part of the history of not just the Mardi Gras Indians, but of Mardi Gras New Orleans itself. Remember, New Orleans was a French colony before it was ever an American colony. And so a lot of the French ways and even the Spanish ways when the Spanish uh, had control of the colony for 60 years um, remained and still remain in the city to this day. And so once the Louisiana Purchase took place in 1803 and you had this flood of Americans coming into this basically French place, they were forced to confront ways that they hadn't seen before. Nowhere else in the American South did enslaved people have the freedoms that the enslaved people had in Louisiana and in New Orleans specifically. And so Mardi Gras was a fearful thing. And so a way for this white enslaving owner class to establish not only its dominance in government after the Louisiana Purchase, but its dominance in society was to take over Mardi Gras. So you're talking about the things that they fear, that's how you have the the crews that we know today of Momus and Comus and Rex and all of these parades because 
Americans came into Louisiana and said, not only are we going to take over the colony, we're going to take over the culture and prove that we can do it better than you. And so those are the lasting vestiges of Mardi Gras today. Really? There's a, there's a, broad, there's a broader thing. If this is true, and I don't know how true this is, but I read it on, a, I think, a, a website attached to the History Channel maybe, but the host of the thing was talking, and it actually it, it linked to a clip, to a video clip, that the host was saying that the reason the board, the northern border of Louisiana is drawn where it is, at the 33rd parallel, which is where it touches Arkansas, was mm-hmm. that the uh, early Americans, uh, specifically under Jefferson, they wanted to concentrate all the Catholics in one place, or most of the Catholics in one place. So there's a – and, and Bruce and I are speaking about this thing actually come Saturday at, a, at the state uh, Louisiana Studies Conference. Mm-hmm. But they they wanted – this is early America, which is deeply – and even today is a little bit this way, but in, no, in those days, in the early 19th century and late 18th century prior to that, it was deeply anti-Catholic. I mean, but we still see that – you still see how anti-Catholic America can be when you look at the election of John F. Kennedy, who was the first Catholic yes. president in U.S. Right. history, and it's only been what Biden sent him, right? Right. Who, who's also Catholic, right? So I mean that that sentiment persists. Absolutely. Well, and there's even a, there's a there's an anti-Semitic strain running through the thing too. So, but they were really fearful about Catholics. They were fearful about the uh, you know. There's always a Masonic conspiracy, you know, hiding under everybody's bed. <laughs> Or behind every bush or whatever, uh, so they they drew that that border at the thirty third parallel because the only other places were in in the west because Louisiana was the only state in the west at that time and by eighteen twelve and so what they do they're looking at the map and they think well you've got Catholics in what becomes you know lower Louisiana as it was called and then upper Louisiana which is Arkansas up but the only places where you got Catholics in are in, really in in St Louis and Detroit and that's about it. Mm-hmm. So they concentrate most of the Catholics here, so they think, oh, well, problem solved. So um, I had a question about the language of the Mardi Gras Indians, because um, uh-huh. they have these expressions, Kudipayo, Giacomo, Finaye, Aiko, Aiko. Are those from, like, an African language, or are they just, like, la, 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 you know, made-up sounds? What did you find out about the language of, uh, the Mardi Gras Indians? No, they are not made of sound. Uh, they, it's kind of like how Jamaican patois developed and mm-hmm. being, it, it being a mixture of languages of French, Spanish, and English for Jamaican patois. For the language and some of the words that remain that the Mardi Gras Indians use, use it's a mix of French as well as indigenous words. So, for example, the song Aiko Aiko, which has the refrain about Josh Moltinane, is uh, a word from Mobilian jargon, which was a common tongue used among <clears throat> indigenous tribes in the lower Mississippi River Valley. And it was the original word, and this is based on research by Shane Leaf and John McCusker from their book, uh, The Native Origins of the Mardi Gras Indians, and I believe that came out in 2019. But they found out that that word, Tomofinane came from the root indigenous word from Mobilian jargon, a chukama, which is like an excited greeting. And so as language changes, especially in what is an oral tradition of black people and specifically uh, black Nazi Indians, it's become Jacomofinane because that's how it sounds to the ear. But the way it is spelled is like A-C-H-U-K. 
S-K-U-M-A. And that's just an excited word of reading. So that's a real word. The beat that uh, the Indians say they create their music to is called the Bambula beat. But Bambula is another word from uh, Mobilian jargon. It's an indigenous word from the root word Bambela. The specific line that you're talking about in the song Indian Red, which is the Mardi Gras Indian hemp, the Mardi Kudasayo, that was translated by Gerowyn DeWolf, who wrote the uh, book From the Kingdom of Congo to Congo Square, uh, about the African roots of Mardi Gras Indians. And he believes that's a mix of French, which roughly translates to who can stop me from having mm-hmm. a Saint Gemento on this plantation, which is why the rest of the song for Indian Red continues, you know, we won't bow down, not on the ground. I love to call yes. my Indian Red. Yes. And that is such a song of resistance because oh. the one thing the white hierarchy always wanted was for black people to bow down to them, you know, either literally or at least metaphorically and saying, no, I'm not going to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Indian Red is is a, um, a song of resistance, and it is in resistance to white supremacy and the social structure that puts black people at the bottom of class, status, and caste. However, all of black masking Indian culture is a culture of resistance. It's a culture of warriors is a culture of fighting back. And so right. that is why when you see them mask on Mardi Gras Day, on St. Joseph's Night, on Super Sunday, or even at Jazz Fest, you see them and they're ordered like, like you know, an army or a tribe right. going to battle. There is someone who may have a flag to show the colors of the tribe. Flag boy. There's... The flag boy. Yeah, the flag boy. The flag boy, then there's also somebody who might have the gang flag position. So you may have more than one flag. You may also have somebody who has a weapon, a spear, or a knife, or an axe. And until contemporary times, the Mardi Gras Indians were thought to be very violent and very dangerous because they would have real weapons. And they would settle scores on Mardi Gras Day, massing these beautiful suits of beads and feathers. I've heard that, that it used to be actually violent and and you got the spy boy, um, you know, I guess is a scouting. Um, so, yeah, what are the jobs within a Mardi Gras Indian troop like that? Are they called so, them, them gangs? No, they call, they call them gangs. Tribes are gangs. Um, most in the culture will refer to each, to, to their tribe as a gang, but that is not meant in like a Bloods and Crips kind of way. Uh, but the different positions are there's the wild man, Spy boy, the flag boy, um, the big chief, and then there may be second chief, second spy, second flag, depending on how many troops. There's also queens that are involved as well. And so the wild man is the character that can play anywhere in the um, in the tribe. He can run anywhere in the line that the tribe is marching right. uh, on the day that they mass. The spy boy, as you said, is the lookout. So they are supposed to go ahead of the tribe and communicate, you know, where they are, what they're seeing. Are they seeing another tribe? Do they want to encounter that other tribe, who it might be, and then communicate that all the way back to the big chief. The flag boy. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. I'm just so excited. (laughs) No worries. The the flag boy, as you mentioned, will carry the colors that um, the tribe is wearing for that year and carry the flag that announces who they are, whether it's 
then there's also the big chief who is like the leader, so not like who is the leader of the tribe. And then depending upon how many other members are in the tribe, there may be someone who's at gang flag position, which, you know, is not just, it's like another flag boy, but it's a, it's a higher position. You may have a second chief or a third chief, and then if there are also women involved in the tribe, you will have your queens as well. And what's the average size of a tribe? I don't know if there is an average size of a tribe. I mean, from the days that, for as long as this culture has been going, there have been tribes that have, could have as many as 100 people. There could be tribes that are as small as, like, 10 or 12 people. So it really depends on how many you can manage. I don't think there are any tribes today that have 100 members, um, but, but they, can be, they can be very large. Okay. Um, and who is it that pushes the crowd back and says, get the hell out the way? I know that's an important role in the uh, – because you've got to have room for the, you know, the people. You have the- to have room, but that's one of the things about the Indians is that, you know, when they parade, they don't have, you know, the police presence that keeps the crowd from coming up to them. So right. they have to kind of police themselves. Yeah. And so the crowd themselves. pushing the crowd back, like uh, is that Spy Boy or is that just – they all have to do it. They kind of all have to do it. it. It may mostly be the flag boy because he, that person in that position will actually have something in their hand to, like, physically push the crowd back with, with the flag. But, you know, that's kind of how this culture evolves. It doesn't take place where normal carnival parades take place uh, downtown right. or in the French Quarter. They take place in the neighborhood of black Americans in New Orleans. So whether that's the seventh ward or the ninth ward, like they take a, they take place in the back of town as it's called, or across the canal. So yeah. they have to do their own work when they push back the crowd. And that's where the term second line comes from because the first line is the parade and then the second line are those following behind it. Yeah, I was going to say it seems to me closer to a second line than one of the big formal Mardi Gras processions because the second lines take place in these little neighborhoods, you know, um, and uh, they don't have, like, there may be a cop at the front and at the back, but they don't have a lot of police, and uh, it's very porous. Like, you can be part of the crowd watching, and if you want to hop in and, and walk, you can do that too, at least in a second line, probably not so much in a, 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 a Mardi Gras Indian. Um so, um, yeah, we talked about the structure. Talk a little more about um, what goes into a suit. Oh, so there are, like, two different sewing styles. There are those who do these flat patches, so their patches tell a story. And then there are those who do, like, 3D creations or creative arts. And so it depends on what kind of tribe you're in and the signifiers of what whether you do beaded flat patches or you do like a 3D creative art structure has changed because people have moved from the original neighborhoods where some of these tribes originated. But basically, if you're doing a beaded flat patch suit, you're telling the story through your suit. So like I spoke with Bo Dallas Jr. Um, and he's the big chief of the Wild Magnolias. And oh, yeah. so Magnolias. Yeah, so his suits tell a story um, on every patch. Each patch, there's, there, there's, there's storytelling. So if you look at the patches, you see what he's beaded, what kind of imagery he's included, and you can follow the story from the crown on his head to the apron at, that drapes his feet. 
uh, for those that do the 3D creative arts, there's so that's like what 2D Montana did. So he's sculpting and they're building and then they bead on cardboard and create these suits and construct them and then put them together like geometrically, if that makes sense. Yes. Mm-hmm. Those, um, they're like a, like a square and they've got, they're made with little beads and little figures in there from a story, I guess. Um, and so you have materials like beads and feathers and velvet and plumes and all sorts of different things can go into the construction of the suit to give it the look and the movement that each Indian may want to have for that year. Yes, because these aren't just to look at. You've got to be able to dance. You've got to be able to jump and, you know, do all the stuff that they do out there. So uh, it's super feather. You, you know, there's lots of stuff going on, but you've still got to have the freedom to move. Yes, and they can be very, very heavy. Oh, my God. Comment, if you will, about the um, – I've always kind of looked at the whole event of the Mardi Gras Indians, and I don't know as much about them, but from what I – and I grew up in Baton Rouge, and I would see, you know, I would see the footage on TV every year at Mardi Gras, and they would send film crews down, you know, from Baton Rouge to New Orleans to film uh, the, the processions and so forth. But it always struck me as being almost like – and this sounds like a crazy metaphor, but I think it works. It struck me as being like – an orchestra, and everybody has a part in the orchestra. You can be a woodwind player, you can be brass, you can be, uh, you know, whatever else, per, uh, percussion, et cetera, uh, keyboardist, uh, strings, and you're all playing a part under the under the direction of the conductor. And everything is choreographed. Everything is, is rehearsed, and yet you have to allow for a certain amount of spontaneity. Can you comment on that as well as on all of the – community of people that have to come together to, to produce these things because it looks like to me a really sophisticated production. Oh, it absolutely is. I think your metaphor is spot on. Uh, so they have practice like two or three times a week. They will mm-hmm. have a practice for signals. They will have a practice for, and they'll have practice to go over their songs and go over their dances. But like you said, there is a degree of spontaneity. I would most closely, uh, align it with hip-hop in yep. the same way that you, that you have uh, rap artists and hip-hop artists who freestyle over a beat. Mardi Gras Indians do the same thing. Yes, there are songs that have certain lyrics, but a lot of times they start to improvise and change those lyrics, and only the chorus or the, or the hook remains the same. The same thing when they dance. Yes, there are certain moves that they will do, but they're really dancing and taking and doing moves that are in their spirit. So it is very choreographed. It, it is very rehearsed, but also it allows room for interpretation. It allows room for individuality. It allows room for the leadership of the tribe to show through at that time. So it's or like, a, or like a jazz or swing number. There's yeah, jazz. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and I'm sure that musical jazz is related because they're merging close to the same time, and I know the bambula was really important for jazz as well. Yeah, all of that, and all of that came out of Congo Square, which is a testament to how much culture was there uh, to begin with, and what people were able to do once they met and mixed and synchronized in that way. Yeah, it's really, really, and, and, um, you know, you see it like in the in the show Treme, Big Chief Albert Lambeau, he's the father of one of the leading jazz guys. So you see the connection between the two. Like 
it's a little different emphasis, but they go back to the same roots. Oh, absolutely. And, and again, like I said, that character and the, the character's son on Treme were based off of real people. Um, they could have been based off of Bo Dallas and his father, who are both leaders of the funk band, the Wild Magnolias, which is still making records in New Orleans. But more traditionally, it may have been based off of Donald Harrison and his son, Donald Harrison Jr., who is a jazz musician. And the entire Harrison family uh, are families of musicians and artists and educators. So we really not just... We really want to talk to Clark Peters someday for our show. Uh, have you ever met the, uh, met him, the actor who plays the chief? I did not know. How about some of the actual chiefs? That's probably more important for what you were doing. Yes, when I did the book, I did interview both uh, Alice Jr. the chief of Wild Magnolias. I spoke with uh, Romeo Bouger, who's the big uh, chief of Nine Sport Hunters. And then I just spoke with other tribe members as well. And then I spoke with Sharice Harrison-Nelson, who is the daughter of Donald Harrison Sr. and is the Maroon Queen of the Guardians of the Flame. We want to thank Nikesha for coming on our podcast. Uh, and really for being willing to do all that work to uh, learn about the Mardi Gras Indians, their history, their traditions, uh, some of the personalities, uh, what the meaning of all this is. And, uh, it's a very integral part to New Orleans. I don't know if we got to talk about it um, with her, but I, I've heard on a, uh, a TV recently that um, around the time of Katrina, um, the Mardi Gras Indians and the uh, NOPD started working to try to, uh, you know, keep it from being so violent because it was, you know, for decades it was just a big clash, a brawl between uh, these people in their uniforms. Well, yeah, the, the cops in their uniforms and the, uh, the tribes in theirs. So, um, it's become, you know, more of something you can carry your family to. So that's good. It's probably, I was reading about the, the Mardi Gras Festival in Spanish Town uh, the old neighborhood off of downtown Baton Rouge that's right east of the capital, in fact. And, yeah, that, they say that that's kind of a raunchy sort of a, <laughs> sort of a Mardi Gras. Uh, some, of the, some of the floats are, you know, pretty, you know, the, the, uh, they, they, the article about it, I think on Wikipedia or somewhere, was saying some of, the, some of the floats were, I think, very snarky and satirical, but a lot of them are just flat raunchy. And they usually tend to be, a, you know, like, like a ridicule of political and public type things. Right. <laughs> the Mardi Gras Indians I don't associate with that. Yeah, they, it's not with raunchiness, no. <laughs> they don't have but um, yeah, Big Chief Cootie Montana just a couple of months before Katrina, I just looked it up, in June of 2005 went to a city council meeting and was, you know, requesting that they try to work with each other instead of, um, you know, the police seeing, oh, black people, let's go beat them up, you know, and um. It so happened he had a heart attack right there and died. Uh, that was his last act. So uh, it kind of brought the Indians and the policemen together to uh, you know, try to work things out and you know, not be so damn racist. So, uh, you know, um, something good came out of that tragedy. And, and then a couple of months later, there was, uh, you know, Katrina. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's probably. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, did he die before or after the storm? I mean, before. 
He died right there in the council meeting. Oh. Uh, in June of 2005. Oh, my gosh. He died in the meeting? Yeah, yeah. Jeez, um, and that was his request was peace between the Indian, Mardi Gras Indians and the police. Uh, uh, I think they've tried to hold on to that, and it's pretty well entrenched. Now, well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. We want to thank Nikisha for coming on. Oh, and, and, and very quickly, the, the area code for Logan Sport is 318. So, <laughs> so we may want to change that for the show notes. <clears throat> but that, that, that 337 is like Lake Charles, Lafayette, et cetera, you know, points south. So, but again, we want to thank Nikisha. It for may be on. that they have somebody's cell phone. You know, that could be. Yeah, that's a possibility. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. Try that one, but if it doesn't work, three one eight at the beginning. <laughs> Absolutely. Or, or, or call the town of Logansport who can who can settle all matters. <laughs> so again, we want to thank Natisha for coming on. And I would also urge uh, uh, listeners here for this week, uh, this is a real kind of a cottage industry, not just Mardi Gras, but everything that spirals out of it, including books about Mardi Gras. So if you are interested, do look these books up online. Look up her book and look up the, you know the books of other authors we brought on. I've seen something here just the other day, another book about Mardi Gras and the Indians or something, but it was about, you know, one of the various groups or organizations that participates in the festival. So if you are interested in this, you can go and believe me, there are books galore. So you can go and, and read more if you'd, you'd like to find this information out. Uh, so again, thank you, Nikisha, for, for coming on the show this week. We also want to thank all of you for listening in, and we hope that you'll join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.